Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 2 is where I want to direct your attention this morning. Matthew chapter 2. Uh, we have been three weeks in the Gospel of Matthew, and we've already made it to chapter 2, a blistering pace. So, um, Matthew chapter 2, and I want to start reading in verse 1. I'm going to read the first 12 verses of this uh, chapter. This very familiar story, isn't it? Matthew chapter After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star. My translation says when it rose. Your translation might say in the east. Think the stars would have risen in the east. When it rose and have come to worship him. Verse 3. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. And all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. You know this story right uh, very well, so right from the beginning, let's take down all the things that you think you know about them, but you don't. Uh, There were not... Three visitors. So the Bible doesn't say there were three visitors. There were three gifts, but we have no reason to believe that there were three wise men. They were not kings. They were magi. That's not the same. Despite the fact that you may have heard or seen in a movie that one of them was Asian and one of them was Caucasian and one was African, we don't know that either. One tradition says that they were named Caspar, Melchior, and Balthazar. That's not in the text. Um, Others have said that all three of them were later baptized by the Apostle Thomas. We don't know anything about that either. Uh, And they did not, absolutely, they did not meet those shepherds in the stable to worship Jesus on the night that he was born. If you're one of those people, you know who I'm talking about, who in December when you set up your nativity set and you insist that the wise men be across the room, you are technically correct, but no one likes you. Okay, that is the way it is. This is one of the stories in the Bible with which we have high familiarity. We know a lot about this. uh, uh, We're very familiar with this story, but we have a depressingly low number of facts. And before we're done, I I hope to show you from Matthew that he wrote it this way on purpose, that it's part of his strategy. 
If you understand that we don't understand much, then you are on your way to understanding what Matthew wanted us to understand from this story. Understand? Uh. Uh, Why is this story here? Well, uh, this is part of Matthew's introduction to Jesus. Luke doesn't tell us the story. Matthew does. It's part of his introduction. This is one of the five scenes in the opening chapters of Matthew where he explicitly says this thing happened, this thing that I'm talking about happened to fulfill what the prophet wrote. Uh, That's in verse 5 of chapter 2. You just see that this is what the prophet has written. Uh, Back in chapter 1, verse 22, it appears again. uh, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophets. Later, when Mary and Joseph and Jesus flee to Egypt, God calls them out of Egypt. And then in chapter 2, verse uh, 15, it says, And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Then in verse 17 again, this happened to fulfill what the prophet Jeremiah said. And then in verse 23, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Scene after scene, here Matthew is trying to argue, he's, he's trying to tell us that uh, the Lord Jesus, when he came, he fulfilled what the scriptures said. That's, that's the point. Matthew says explicitly in these first couple chapters what you're supposed to think implicitly as you read the rest of the book of Matthew. So the birth and the de- de- life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, all part of God's plan, all a fulfillment of scripture. There are prophecies and patterns about the sort of Messiah that he would send in the Old Testament. And here, Jesus fulfills them all exactly. He says those things explicitly in Matthew 2, 1 and 2. And and you're supposed to recognize as you read the rest of the book, why is this happening? Why is this happening? You're supposed to hear Matthew in in your head saying, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. Because there's going to be some strange things that are going to happen. How can it be that Jesus could be the Jewish Messiah and the Jewish people would, would refuse to honor him or welcome him? How, how can that be? All this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. How can it be that it would be part of God's plan that, it, that his, his Messiah would be crucified? How, how is that even possible? All this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the Messiah. So Matthew is telling us these stories and explicitly making the point here in Matthew 1 and 2 that you're supposed to implicitly read in the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. All this is part of God's plan, and it's being fulfilled. But in these first uh, 12 verses in chapter 2, he's got even more preparatory work in mind. So that's why this passage fits in the rest of of Matthew. But he's got something more in mind even here. This morning, I want to show you from this text three ways to respond to Jesus. We're going to read through Matthew. You're going to see Jesus uh, interacting with people. You're going to learn a lot about him. You're going to see some of the miracles that he does. Uh, Listen to his sermons. Uh, Think, Matthew says, think, even before we get any further, about how you're going to respond to him. And there are three options for you listed in this text, in this story. Uh, Let's take them in in the story, uh, not in order of importance or even the order of the story, but in order of space devoted to that response. All right, so first, how you can respond to Jesus, you can respond to him, first of all, with indifference. Indifference. This is not recommended. This is what a lot of people do. 
And the group that embodies this response in the text is the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem. The religious leaders in Jerusalem. So the wise men appear and they ask about the one who is born king of the Jews. Uh, It causes quite a stir. And, And the present king, King Herod, we'll talk about him more in a minute, consults with the religious scholars to see if they had any ideas about where this Messiah was going to be born. Think about this. Herod is a convert to Judaism. He's not a Jew by birth. We'll talk about that. He's a convert to Judaism, and he has this idea that probably somewhere, there, that because there's so many prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah, there's got to be one about where he was born. He, he doesn't know it, but there's got to be somebody who knows. And actually, in between the time that the Old Testament was completed and the New Testament was begun, there were a, a, a host of of ideas and development in this understanding of what the Messiah would be like. So Herod says, where's where's he born? There's got to be something about that. And this group of experts that he calls together, two groups, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they give him the same answer, Bethlehem, Bethlehem. This is a direct prophecy. It's not really a pattern. We'll see a a big pattern next week. But here's a a prophecy in Bethlehem. And he quotes, they quote from Micah chapter 5. I wrote out the whole passage from Micah 5. I think I did in your note sheet. Um, Micah 5. Let's read what Micah the prophet said. Matthew paraphrases it a little bit. Uh, There's some differences. None of them significant. But look at Micah 5 too. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me, God says, he's coming from me, one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand, this son to be born, he will stand and shepherd his flock, in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach the ends of the earth. There's some differences between what Micah says and and what Matthew quotes. None of them uh, uh, significant or troubling. What's interesting, both of them have this theme of shepherding. Uh, It's possible that, that that Matthew actually is, is quoting from 2 Samuel 5 there. He will shepherd his people Israel. But Micah has this concept of shepherding. Jesus is coming to shepherd his people Israel. Shepherding is an imagery for leadership all the way through the Bible. I, I, I wonder, I think, I think Matthew is going to provoke, he's supposed to provoke you, trying to provoke you here a little bit. Who's the true shepherd of Israel? It's not the religious leaders, and it's certainly not Herod the king. The true shepherd is Jesus. He's the one, he's the real shepherd who's going to come. Here's the prophecy, and the religious leaders know it without missing a beat. Here it is, Bible trivia for 25 points. Where does Micah the prophet say the Messiah would be born? And they know the answer. Ding, 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 they ring in. Bethlehem, yes! 25 points on the board for the Jewish religious leaders. And then what do they do about this? Absolutely nothing. Do you know how far Bethlehem is from Jerusalem? It's about five and a half miles. Uh, My dog and I can walk that far in about an hour. It takes us about 70 minutes to walk five and a half miles. The Magi come. Everyone knew about it. 
Herod asked this question, they know the answer, and not one of them will walk five miles to Bethlehem to find out what happened. This is supposedly the Messiah that they have been waiting for to deliver them from the Roman occupation, and there's no response, absolute indifference. They know all of the answers, but the answers make no difference in how they live and what they do. This sort of indifference, if you think about this, an indifferent response to Jesus, this is the most culturally acceptable way to be a Christian in our world. To believe that Jesus, if you want to be a Christian, but don't want any grief about being a Christian in the world, this is the way to go. Take a moderate approach. Uh, a don't-go-out-of-your-way approach. A, uh, Jesus is important, but he's not that important. He's not worth walking five miles over. I mean, that would be ridiculous. Jesus is important, but he's, let's not go overboard with him. Let, let's not be a fanatic. I mean, when we need him, he'll be there for us. He keeps me comfortable, but he doesn't really confront me. He, he's always there with a kind word, but he's in no sense my covenant Lord. He lets me manage my own life, because make no, no mistake, I am the manager of my life. Jesus is in charge of morale, not in charge of management. This approach to Jesus allows you to pick and choose which of his teachings work best for you. And this is the Jesus who is most useful to your campaign to run for president. If you're speaking to uh, conservatives, Jesus is pro-life. Absolutely, Jesus is pro-life. If you're speaking to liberals, Jesus really wants you to care about foreigners and the immigrant. Don't get those two confused, though, in the wrong crowd. Jesus is important, but not really that important. This is the most culturally acceptable way to be a Christian. There's actually something that frightens me in this passage as I, as I think about it. What I see in these religious leaders, when I see this level of knowledge paired with this indifference, it frightens me, frankly, about my children. And it frightens me about your children. And it frightens me about all those babies that we've prayed for over the last several months. In our church, it's really important for us that we teach our kids the Bible we want them to know the good news about Jesus. We want them to know the stories about Jesus. We want them to know the facts of the Bible. We want them to be, have a good biblical education. We don't always do this as well as we want. Sometimes Pastor Scott laments. He asks in Pyro about the differences between David and Daniel, and they get them confused. That's discouraging. But we try. We try. This is a priority. We want our kids to know about Jesus. My fear, though, is that uh, what happens when our children are educated beyond their level of wonder. They have lots of knowledge about Jesus, but not much devotion to him. He's important, but not that important. He, he is not of life-shaping importance. Remember what C.S. Lewis said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. It's dangerous. It is dangerous to know a lot about Jesus but not to be in awe of him. 
It's interesting, when we were singing that song, I was thinking about it, the new song, that uh, Facing a Task Unfinished. Some of you, it took me a minute to recognize the church's one foundation. That's the, the tune that we usually sing that song to. Now, those words were written a long time ago. The chorus was written recently, but the, 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 the original lyrics were written a long time ago. It's, it's, um, if you're paying attention, it's kind of a tough song. God, free us from our lethargy. Keep us, God, from our ease. God, the truth of the matter is we don't really care about whether people around the world know about Jesus or not, so we're asking you to save us from our own indifference. How do you cultivate wonder? How do you do that? How do you make sure that your wonder, your awe of Jesus, matches your knowledge? I have a couple suggestions. I'm sure there's more to add to this list, but I, here's just a couple things. You should recognize that you need wonder. You should recognize that you need this. You are naturally disinclined away from wonder at eternal things. You are naturally spiritually insensitive. You are already pre-programmed to yawn at eternal wonders. Your natural tendency toward eternal truths is on par with your tendency toward junk mail. You get the mail, you stand over the garbage can... Is there anything interesting here? Oh, look, the deal of the century, the opportunity of a lifetime. Oh, you can save, lower my energy bill? Great, that's wonderful. You pitch into the garbage. Right? One expression of our, of our natural spiritual condition, the fact that we are spiritually dead, the fact that we are sinners, is that you are disinclined to be amazed at eternal wonders. You should recognize that. You should recognize that you need this, that this is something that you need the Spirit of God to do in your life. I pray about this all the time. It is rare that my affections match the truth that I know. Maybe this would be one of the ways that you could prepare for worship on Sunday morning. Lord, move me to be stunned by the eternal truths I will sing and hear today. Move me to that because I'm not naturally that way. Don't let them fall flat before my heart. This is how the psalmist prayed in Psalm 119. He taught us to pray this way. Turn my heart toward your statutes. Turn my heart guard toward, toward you and not toward selfish gain. There's a second way to cultivate wonder, and I think it's to worship with other people. Worship with other people. Here's one of the reasons when we gather on Sunday mornings, uh, we leave the lights on. We don't dim the lights in the auditorium when we gather on Sunday mornings to worship. And uh, it's important to us that the human voice is the most important sound when we worship. So that you hear and see other people worshiping. That's important to us. Next week we're going to read from Psalm 145. That's uh, our new, uh, next psalm as we're continuing. My, I think, if I counted correctly, we'll finish having read all 150 psalms on Palm Sunday. That's when we're going to finish, which seems somehow appropriate. But uh, Psalm 145, listen to verse 3 of Psalm 145. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. 
They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. You see this transference of awe from one generation to another? I don't know if you think about this when you teach Sunday school. This is what you're doing. They speak, and I will meditate. They tell, and I will proclaim. Be around people in worship who are in awe of God and learn from them. Absorb it from them. Worship with them and be shaken out of your indifference. This is not something you can do easily by watching church online, if at all. That's one way you can respond to Jesus through indifference. It is not recommended. Here's a second not recommended way to respond to Jesus. Hostility. Hostility. Enter King Herod. Every good story needs a good villain, and here he is, the best one ever, King Herod. He's the epitome of hostility. To him, to Herod, the birth of Jesus is a threat. Not just to him, but it's a threat to you, too, to your autonomy. I wonder uh, wonder if you feel the weight of that. Let's talk about Herod for a minute. What do we know about Herod? Herod is at this moment here in Matthew 2, the duly appointed king of the Jews. He was made the king of the Jews by uh, the Romans. He has no natural claim to the throne. He's not a Jew. He converted to Judaism. He's actually by birth an Idumean. An Idumean. He comes from the region of Palestine that was settled by the Edomites. So you can hear that. Edomites, Idumeans, they're, they're related. Um, the connection. Do you, do you remember who the Edomites were and where they came from? So, the Edomites are descendants of Esau, back, way, back, way back in the book of Genesis. Esau had a twin brother. His name was Jacob. And Jacob is the father of the Jews. And Esau is the father of the Edomites. And the Old Testament story, these boys did not get along. And their descendants don't get along. And here we have an Idumean king, Herod, reigning over the Jews in Jerusalem it is not guaranteed, it's guaranteed not to go well. Uh, Herod spent uh, a, a, a fair amount of time consolidating his throne. Uh, he was a great builder. He led some great building projects in uh, Israel. Amazing buildings, including the temple, the temple that Jesus went to, a 35-acre complex in the heart of Jerusalem. Herod spent years and years and years building this. He was a skilled diplomat. He was also, uh, he collected a lot of taxes. And he used the Jews for conscripted labor. Toward the end of his life, towards the end of his reign, actually this this is towards the end of his reign, he became paranoid, uh, very paranoid about everybody. Uh, He, (laughs) I love how scholars like to put this. He had his favorite wife and two of his sons executed. His favorite wife. You hate to lose your favorite wife. I mean, your second favorite wife, maybe, but your favorite wife. It's terrible. But he he had them executed because he was convinced they were plotting against him. Uh, The Roman emperor at the time uh, said, and we'll try to translate the the pun so that it works well. It works. The pun works well in English and in uh, uh, and in Greek. He said, it's safer to be one of... Remember, Herod was Jewish. He was keeping kosher. It's safer to be one of Herod's sows than to be one of his sons. Uh, 
he, he, he's paranoid. And here comes, here comes, imagine this, into crazy Herod's world, these mysterious visitors talking about a star in the heavens that told them to go to find the one who was born king of the Jews. Oh, no. He was not born a prince. That's important. He was not born a prince. That's mostly how, uh, prince, uh, how heirs to the throne are born. They're born princes. But no, no, no. He is born king. From his birth, he is king. Oh, Herod. Even the stars are against you. Oh, no. This can't be. Herod is king. They both can't be king. This is not a story of three kings. This is actually a story of two kings. Jesus and Herod. If this baby is king, that means Herod can't be king. And the Jews have been trying to get rid of him for decades. This is the last thing that he needs. Jesus is a threat. He's a threat against which Herod is going to begin plotting immediately. He's going to get rid of this baby. I don't know why the Magi were not more suspicious of Herod. For three wise men, they sure were dumb. Right? You know, Herod calls him in and go find out. Well, he finds out the exact time that, that Jesus, that the star appeared. And then this, well, I want to go worship him too. Come and, come and tell me. He's plotting. You should, have, uh, you should not have sympathy for Herod. Don't have sympathy for him. But you should at least appreciate the fact that he understands the implications of the birth of Jesus. It's possible that he understands it better than you do. Jesus is not just a threat to Herod. He's a threat to us all. Maybe one of the best ways to show you this is by thinking with you for just a few minutes about the people in the Gospels who refused to follow Jesus and why they refused to follow him. Can you think of anybody in the Gospels that, that turned away from Jesus and said, no, no, I'm not interested? Uh, one of the stories is in John 6:66. 6, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Not the twelve, uh, but others. And the reason they stopped following him, if you read the rest of John 6, is because he talked about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, which is weird. He's speaking figuratively there, but he's, this sort of intimacy, this sort of connection is just too strange. It's just too invasive. Jesus, you're demanding to be in my business too much. In Matthew 8, Jesus cast out demons from two men. The demons then went into pigs who ran down a hill and threw themselves in the Sea of Galilee. Pigs can't fly, and apparently demon-possessed pigs can't swim either. And the people who owned the pigs returned to Jesus, and they begged him, please leave. Go away, please. We... I don't think they were solely upset about the pigs. Just that Jesus is too powerful, too intimidating. What can a person with that much power demand of you? He's dangerous. It was the demand that Jesus made on him that made a young ruler who had a lot of money walk away from Jesus. Jesus is too powerful. He's too demanding. He interferes too much with your life. He presumes too much authority over what you do. He is a threat to your autonomy. Because he's demanding, because he's so powerful and so demanding, I sure hope he's kind too. I sure hope it's worth following him. 
If Jesus demands that you give away everything you have, would it be worth it to follow him? He doesn't make this sort of demand for everyone, but what if he demands it of you? Leave your job, sell your house, go back to school, move somewhere else for my sake. Open up a room in your house for another baby to come in. That's what I want you to do. Is Jesus worth doing something like that? Or Give up that hobby. You need to abandon that relationship. You need to let that dream die. If Jesus said, were to say something like that, is he worth doing that for? Is he the sort of threat that Herod thinks he is? If he is, I hope that Jesus is also trustworthy. I hope he's also kind. I think this is why some people struggle with the concept of grace. Grace. We love grace. Uh, They don't want to have... People struggle with this. They don't want to have a relationship with God based on grace. They would rather have a contract. It would be safer to have a contract with God than a relationship based on grace. Let's have a contract, God. This is your part, and this is my part. And I'll do my part, and you do your part. And uh, we'll both stay in each other's lanes. Let's not do grace, because if we do grace, that means I have no rights at all. And I don't want to have any, I, I don't want to, I, I want to have some negotiating power in this relationship. So that if you ask me to do something that I don't want to do, <laughs> I, I want to I have some negotiating power here so that I can say no. But if what the Bible says about your spiritual condition and my spiritual condition, that we're dead in sin, if what the Bible says about us is true, there's no way to be saved except by grace. You are completely dependent on God. And because of that, there is nothing that He cannot ask you to do. He better be kind. He, he better be he better be generous. He better be trustworthy, gracious. Of course, he proves it to us, doesn't he? He, he proves that he is by offering himself as our substitute on the cross. Here's the grace of God on display. What has Jesus done for us? He lived the life we should have lived, the perfect life before God. He died the death we deserve to die. He rose again, and everyone who trusts in him will have life and forgiveness. He proves that he's trustworthy. He proves that he is kind. He's a threat, but it's the best threat you will ever receive in your life. Hostility. Here's response number three. It's the recommended response. It's the best choice. Worship. Worship. You can be indifferent to Jesus, you can be hostile to Jesus, or you can bend the knee. Here comes the Magi. We don't know very much about them, not nearly as much as we need to know in order to make a good Christmas movie. Um, Magi were from the region of Persia or from the region of uh, Babylon, the east. They were professional wise men. They studied and interpreted the stars. They were like priests, but instead of consulting the Bible, they consulted the heavens. They, they read other holy texts too. 
But they could give you spiritual advice based on the stars. They were astrologers and astronomers. They were prophets and scientists all at the same time. We don't know how they came to look for a star. We don't know that. How did they know to look for the star? Our best guess is that somehow they'd heard about Balaam. Balaam? I don't even know about Balaam. Well, Balaam is in the book of Numbers. Balaam was another wise man from the east. In the book of Numbers, a a king, an enemy king, hires Balaam to come and curse the Israelites. It doesn't work very well. But Balaam says uh, in Numbers 24, 17, a star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the people of Sheth. They had this text, maybe. Maybe, I'm not sure. Maybe they had some discipling from Daniel. Remember Daniel in the Old Testament? Daniel was in the east. He was a a faithful follower of God. Maybe they had some things left over from Daniel. They don't appear to have had Micah the prophet because if they had had Micah the prophet, they wouldn't have gone to Jerusalem to look for the king. They would have been able to go right to Bethlehem, right? I mean, they would have known that. Uh, We don't know what sort of astronomical phenomenon they followed. They used the term the the star. They saw the star when it rose in the east. Uh, There's no indication in the text that it moved ahead of them from the east all the way to Jerusalem. There's no indication of that text. But it did move and lead them to Bethlehem. So there's that. Um, It's not hard for skeptics to really question the historicity of this. Um, There's an excellent book by a, a man by the name of Colin Nichol. He wrote a book called The Great Christ Comet. And he takes all of the biblical data and as much scientific data as he can find and he puts it together to uh, talk about the historicity of this event. If you need to defend the historicity of this event, you can do it. It's possible this is not a fairy tale. Actually, what's interesting about the wise men, if you think about it, we see the progression of the revelation of God. They see a star... It leads them to a prophecy in the book of Micah in the scriptures, which then leads them to Christ. God has revealed himself in nature. He has spoken to us in his word, and supremely he reveals himself in his son. See how that works even in the book of Matthew here with the Magi. I don't know if the Magi were aware of everything that was happening. Um, uh, their coming is, is, seems to be prophesied in Scripture. Look at Psalm 72, uh, 10. May the kings of Tarshish and of distant shores bring tribute to him. May the kings... Maybe this verse is why we want to call them kings. Maybe. May the kings of Sheba and Seba present him gifts. May all kings bow down to him and all nations serve him. Or Isaiah 66. I think that Matthew had this verse in mind. The prophet says to God's servant, Herds of camels will cover your land, young camels of Midian and Ephah, and all from Sheba will come, bearing gold and incense. No myrrh, but gold and incense, and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. I don't know if the Magi knew that. What I do know is that the Magi were ultimate outsiders. They're not Jews. They have an occupation, looking at the stars, that the Old Testament condemns a lot. They don't know the Bible very well. No self-respecting Jew would have had any time for these foreigners, and yet they come from a great worship, a great distance to worship. They had such little knowledge, but they made such a wise choice. 
Here's the grace of God to these outsiders. Grace to the nations. The nations over which Jesus is going to claim all authority. Go and tell the nations. Go and make disciples of all the nations. And here are the first international disciples. Magi. The good news about Jesus is for all kinds of people. People of all ethnicities, people of all occupations, people with all levels of expertise in understanding Jesus. All people, the people you least expect to come, the least qualified, the least worthy, you can come. I read somebody said it over the weekend. If 10 years ago it had been announced that Kanye West and Justin Bieber would be preaching the gospel, you would not believe it. Herod should have bowed down, but he did not. The religious leaders should have sought out this Messiah, but they refused. But these outsiders, these nobodies, without any credentials in Jerusalem, they come to worship, and you can too. The call is to anybody. Their worship is marked by a couple of different things. I'll finish with this. Their worship is marked by joy. Verse 10 literally says, Seeing the star, they rejoiced with a very great joy. Matthew packed the word joy into that verse as much as he possibly could. They're so excited. Their worship is marked by joy. The truth of Jesus introduces joy into our lives that is controlling. It's a stabilizing perspective of contentment and peace. Jesus is the defining reality in the life of those who are his followers. Everything else can fall apart, but if you have Jesus, you have joy. Their worship is marked by sacrifice. It's marked by joy. It's marked by sacrifice. This long journey and these great gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and he is worthy of them. Look at the regard with which they hold this child. They come and they kneel and they give him these gifts. You are worthy of these gifts. You deserve to have them more than I deserve to have them. They, belong, they rightfully belong to you. I don't deserve to have these things, but you do. This is the spirit with which we give on Sunday mornings. Uh, God is more worthy of this than I am. He deserves this. He's deserving of this wealth that I have, that, that I, I'm giving. We don't give to God out of pity. We don't give to God merely to, to keep the lights on or to build the church building. We give because he is worthy of this sacrifice. My grandfather died the summer after my uh, sophomore year of high school. And after that, my grandmother came and spent a fair amount of time with us. She'd come and visit her house for the weekend or for a little bit longer than that. And she, she had a habit that drove my father crazy. Um, his mother-in-law. So she would be in the family room watching television. She'd be alone in the room watching television. And if my dad walked into the room, she would get up from her chair and she would say, Here, Don, sit here in the good chair. No one else is in the room. There's other places to sit. But here, Don, have, sit here. I'll get up for you. She did that because my dad was master of the house. And as master of the house, he deserves the good chair. And she got up to give it to him. And it used to drive my dad crazy. Because he would think to himself, what does she think about me that I would demand an 85-year-old woman to get up and give me her chair? 
what, how, how, what a low opinion does she have of me that she would think that I would demand that I want the chair. You get up, Grandma. I'm sitting down. <laughs> right? I mean, come on. Two perspectives on giving, right, in that, that little vignette. God, you are worthy of this sacrifice. I'll give it up for you because you deserve it. You deserve it and I don't. As opposed to, oh, poor God, let's just throw him a bone. He's in dire straits. Give him a little charity here. One of those attitudes reflects well in his worthiness and one does not. And the Magi know the Lord Jesus is worthy. You are so great. You deserve this. So here are three responses to the Lord Jesus. We're going to see him at work in days to come. We're going to listen to him speak. Uh, We're going to see what he does. Is the Lord Jesus someone to whom you can be indifferent? Is he going to raise your hostility? Uh Uh-uh, that's too much. No way. Or is he someone for you to bend the knee to worship? Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning, and Lord, we confess that we fall short of this grand vision. These men who knew so little came from so far and gave so much to honor the Lord Jesus. How we need you to teach us and impress upon our hearts and our minds your great glory. You are worthy. You are, you are the, the cause of our greatest joy. The reality of the Lord Jesus Christ, His existence, His death and resurrection is defining for us. We want that to be true. And you are worthy of all of our worship, all of our sacrifices. Work in our hearts, Lord, that our, what we know about you would be matched by awe and by wonder. And help us, oh, help us to teach it to our children, to teach it to one another, that they too might be in awe of you. For this, we are dependent upon your great grace. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.